Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for willing to, being willing to, to give up your son for us. And, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to come to us and give up everything that you enjoyed in the Father's presence to come to us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are willing to, to live within such broken creatures. We pray, Spirit, that you would fill in our cracks and mend our wounds and you would, you would sand our rough edges that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit might make for yourself uh, uh, people that are, that are holy and, and righteous and, and you'd begin that work now. That as we, as we hear your word, we would, we would uh, feel drawn to you. Spirit, you would stir our affections. That uh, we would uh, see Christ in all his glory. And that we would live lives of obedience that are fueled by joy. And fueled by the bliss of knowing Christ. And uh, we pray that even now, the words of my mouth, the, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are continuing to learn the Psalms of Ascent during this Easter season. And the Psalm under consideration this morning is Psalm 129. And we've said that the, psalm, the Psalms of Ascent would have been sung by pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for one of the festivals held in that city three times a year. And the intention that this Psalm, Psalm 129 in particular, would be sung corporately is apparent in the way it begins. It's the same thing we saw with Psalm 124 a few weeks ago, right? The Psalm begins with someone introducing the first line. Often they have attacked me from my youth. And then that person invites everyone to join them. Let Israel now say, which we said when discussing Psalm 124 is the equivalent of all together now, right? And the rest of the people would start by repeating the first line. Often they have attacked me from my youth. And together they'd be off, right? And they would sing together the remainder of this psalm by memory. This is therefore a song that is not intended to reflect the attitude and experience of a single individual, but the attitude and experience of all God's people. Even though the, the pronouns that show up in this psalm are in the first person singular, the intention that this song be sung corporately demonstrates the expectation that it ring true for everyone. Everyone who's trying to live a life of obedience in response to a God who is merciful and faithful to us, to an undeserving people. And the expectation, therefore, is that we be able to sing this psalm, particularly verses five through eight, as representative of our posture as we pursue Christ, which is a bit uncomfortable because the psalmist in verses five through eight is mad. He's done. Not in the defeated sense of that word, but in the I'm coming out swinging sense. He's had enough, he's fed up, and he is taking action and asking God to assist him in his fight. Eugene Peterson describes the, the feeling of these four verses. He writes, anger seethes and pulses in the wounds. A sense of wrong has been festering. Accumulating resentment wants vindication. 
Another scholar points out that the, the psalmist is hoping three things will happen to those who oppose him. No honor, no success, no blessing. Right? In verse five, he prays that those who hate Zion will progress no farther, but be sent, sent in away in the shame of retreat. No honor. In verses six and seven, he goes one step Further, and, and prays not just for the retreat of those who hate Zion, but that they would have no opportunity to begin their encroachment in the first place. And using the image of grass on a rooftop that has no root system and is quickly scorched by the sun before it even has the chance to grow, the psalmist is saying that he likewise hopes that those opposed to God would find an inhospitable environment for their opposition and it would die before having the opportunity to grow. No success. And in verse eight, the psalmist is praying that these people and their behavior would be seen for what it is, that it would be exposed. He's praying that something deadly would not be blessed as life-giving or something depraved be blessed as beautiful. The apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, writes that this is exactly what typically happens. The ungodly not only do those things that should not be done, but even applaud others who practice them, he writes. And here the psalmist is praying that there would be no applause for these things that are displeasing to God, but that they'd be exposed for what they are, deadly and empty and vain. No blessing. No honor, no success, no blessing. But we must ask, what has gotten the psalmist so fired up? Why is he so mad? An answer to that question comes in verses two to three where we see that these people, whoever they are, have made life difficult for the psalmist. They've attacked him frequently. Often they have attacked me, he testifies in verse one. And this has been going on for quite some time. From my youth, the psalmist testifies again in verse one. Often they have attacked me from my youth. And the frequency and duration of these attacks are specified. But the exact nature of it, we don't quite know. Whether they're physical or emotional or spiritual or some combination of all of those. We do, however, get a graphic image of how the psalmist experienced these attacks. This man likens his back to a field and his attackers to plowers. So that the image he creates in our minds is of a, a man lying face down on the ground with oxen trampling on his back, pulling a long blade across his skin that creates long, deep furrows in his back. It's an excruciating image that if you're a visual thinker like I am, will make you squirm in discomfort as you think of this man's back being opened like one would plow a field or score a loaf of bread before putting it in the oven. But the real violence of these attacks is not the pain of them, but that they contradict what the psalmist knows to be true about himself in the Lord. And they make it difficult to remember and live in the reality that he insists upon in verse five, that the Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of death. The reality that, uh, this verse, verse four, stands out in this psalm as though the psalmist blurted it out in the middle of one of these attacks. 
The psalmist appears to be preaching to himself, attempting to remind himself of a reality that is more real than his current experience of oppression. The reality that he preaches to himself is, is first that God is righteous. Scholars agree that this statement about the righteousness of God is a reference to his, his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. The psalmist is reminding himself that despite his, his present experience, God still sees him and has not forgotten him. His promise of deliverance still stands. And for the Jews, the, the content of that promise was exemplified in God's covenant-keeping act of deliverance in the Exodus. In verse four, the psalmist writes that the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of death. The cords of death. This is an image of, of bondage, of, of slavery. And indeed, in the Exodus, God delivered his people from slavery. He cut the cords that the Egyptians had tied in order to keep the Hebrews enslaved. And by recalling this, this act of deliverance, this covenant-keeping act of deliverance, the psalmist is reminding himself that he's a free man. God has made it so. The experience of, of opposition cannot nullify God's character as a righteous deliverer for his people. Which is why the psalmist writes in verse two, often they have attacked me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And neither will they. Because God has promised to deliver his people from slavery, to cut the cords of death. In God, he's a, he's a victor, not a victim. But his opponents, again, whoever they are, have made this, this God-given identity difficult to remember at times. This is why he's mad. And this is why he prays what he does. It's almost like he's saying, Lord, let me not forget who I am in you. The world tells me I'm nothing, but you've taken notice of me. The world tells me I'm a slave, but you've set me free. The world tells me that you have forgotten, but you haven't. The world tells me I'm worthless, but you have made me lovely by your love. The psalmist would have understood this about himself and about God through the act of the Exodus alone. But many years later, God would accomplish a second Exodus for his people, not from Egypt, but from a much greater and more powerful master. God delivered his people from slavery to sin and death through the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see the lengths to which God is willing to go in order to redeem us, not because we are deserving of his attention, but simply because he's promised himself to redeem us. It's his character. And we're actually quite undeserving of his love, but he loves us nonetheless. And in his love, we become lovely. Although the Son of God lived in, in the comfort and bliss of heaven, he was willing to leave it and be born the son of an insignificant and poor woman living in the inconsequential town of Nazareth. The Son of God was without limitation. Suddenly, and now for all of eternity, he lives within the bounds of a physical body. He gets tired and thirsty and hungry and he needs space to just be alone for a little while. As if that wasn't low enough, he went lower still. And he offered himself up to be crucified as a criminal despite doing no wrong. 
He was whipped and beaten so that he literally had long and deep furrows opened up on his back. And he was bound to the cross with the cords of death. And on the cross, he experienced not only the cruelty and shame of crucifixion, but the abandonment of God our Father who blocked his ears to his son's cries for mercy and for three days he lay dead in a grave. Why did he suffer all of these things? And why did he do it willingly? It was because by his death, he knew that he was accomplishing an exodus. He knew that by his death, he was acquiring a prize. He set his eyes firmly on a joy that was set before him. And the prize, the the joy was so great that he was willing to endure the loss of all things in order to have it. That's what our Hebrews passage says this morning. And that prize that he fixed his eyes on, that joy that he set his eyes on was you. Sinful, grumpy, ungrateful, miserable, angry you and me. He was willing to die in order to have you and to accomplish for you an exodus. But he did not stay dead forever. After three days, we know he was resurrected to new life, eternal life, which is precisely what he offers to all those who trust in him, who believe in him. And those who trust in Jesus are are promised the hope of future life and the hope of life in the present as well. Apart from Jesus, we are dead. We're slaves to sin. It's cords wrapped around us. But Jesus breaks those cords and he sets us free from sin and he makes us alive in the present by giving us a new nature, recreating us as it were, so that we may resist temptation and choose to follow him instead. He makes us lovely by his love. In him we are free, men and women. In him we will never be forgotten or neglected. In him we have hope and and wonderful prospects for the future. In him is our worth and our identity and that can never be taken from us. But like the psalmist, there's much in this life that often clouds these realities. We're forced to to preach the gospel to ourselves often because otherwise it gets swallowed up and hidden by those who oppose it. The world in which we live makes it difficult to live out of the peace and joy of our victory in Christ. And And the psalmist is saying that we should be mad about this. And we should be praying for the influences in our life to retreat, no honor. To to never get a foothold in our lives, no success. And that we would be able to see them for what they are, no blessing. Right, the trick of course is identifying those things that threaten to undermine our ability to see ourselves in the light of the gospel and to live out the joy of our identity in Christ. And there are many candidates for what the psalmist calls his opponents. Those things that attack us by contradicting the gospel and make, us, make it difficult for us to see ourselves in Christ. But this morning I'm going to call out one that isn't really one among equals, but is actually far and away the greatest threat to spiritual life that we face in the modern world. 
And if that claim sounds dramatic, it's because it is. But it's not my claim. I'm merely quoting Dallas Willard here. He was a philosopher famous for his writings on Christian spiritual formation. And Willard claims that the greatest threat to spiritual life that we face in the modern world is an over-busy, digitally distracted life of speed. I'll repeat that in case you were distracted by the device buzzing in your pocket. The greatest threat to spiritual life that we face in the modern world is an over-busy, digitally distracted life of speed. And why does he make this dramatic claim? Well, for one, humanity has never been busier or more distracted in our existence as a species. John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, quotes a 2016 study that found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. And each user is on his or her phone for two and a half hours. And for millennials, the number is twice that, almost five hours a day. Technology, our phones, social media, text messages, they're enslaving us. They're literally hijacking our brains to make us so addicted that we neglect everything else in order to lose ourselves in endless scrolling. And Comer points out that when it comes to our phones, we're not actually the customers, but the product. It's your attention for sale along with your peace of mind. And significant that Sean Parker, the the first president of Facebook, calls himself a conscientious objector to social media. In an interview, he explains why. He he says this, "The, the thought that went into building these applications, and Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. That's right, just the sort of thing a hacker like him would come up with. But the really maddening thing is that he isn't talking about hacking a computer or some inanimate object, but your mind, your soul. Sean Parker may be a conscientious objector now, but the social media machine has hummed right along, hijacking your soul. He has become, we we have become overwhelmed, consumed, distracted by a computer in our pockets or wrapped around our wrists and it's made us frantic and anxious and busy beyond belief. One study shows that since 2000, our attention spans have plummeted so far that goldfish now have longer attention spans than the average iPhone user. But what has this to do with the spiritual life or with this psalm or living out the gospel? Well, we must not forget that the the life of faith is not primarily about having the right answer, but about a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we must also never forget that the gospel is so counterintuitive that we need to hear it over and over and over and over again until it is able to truly sink down into our hearts and inform the way we live so that we might be able to endure all things in this world. 
As the apostle Paul says, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because in Christ, we know we're victors, regardless of our experience in this world. But if the life of of faith is primarily of one of relationship with God, and and the gospel is so easy to forget that we must spend time with God in silence and stillness and solitude so that we might be able to know him, allow the words of love that he speaks to us in the Bible drown out the noise of the world, of dings and alerts vying for your attention. Now, it's, it's a pretty... Common sense, actually, that if I were to tell you that I spent two and a half hours a day watching highlights of NBA games, which I'm capable of doing, and only, and only 15 minutes a day talking to Pauline, and that there were even some days when I didn't talk to Pauline at all, then you would be rightfully concerned for the health of my marriage. But doesn't that same logic hold for our relationship with God? We exist in a, a world that fights night and day for our attention. And it's past time to get mad, (laughs) to get fed up, to come out swinging, and to ask for God to assist us in this fight. I've recently reached new levels of of being fed up with being manipulated, that I've made the best purchase I've made in, in years. It's ironically an app for all of my electronic devices, but it's an appropriately named app because it is called Freedom. (laughs) I can turn on this app at the beginning of my day and it restricts my access to the internet. It's like closing all the black holes in my life with the click of a button because I'm no match for the attractional pull of the 24-7 news cycle or mindless videos on YouTube that offer suggestions along the side based on an algorithm algorithm intended to suck you farther and farther down a rabbit hole. I'm no match for it. YouTube's worst fear is that I might shut my laptop and pray instead. And so I've, I've cut those cords of death with this app in order to spend more time praying for you. It was a move I made because I was fed up and angry, and I wonder what it's going to take to get you angry as well, and what shape your spiritual life will be in when you arrive at that place. I mentioned last week that the session for the last year and a half has been working on articulating a mission, vision, and values for our church, and we'll be developing a plan to share that information with you soon. But last week I shared with you our mission statement, which is to glorify God by participating with him in the transformation of our lives, the community of believers, and of our world. But just this past week, we've together articulated our vision statement for the next five years, and over the course of the next five years, we're going to make presence our goal. God's presence with us, our presence in each other's lives, and our church's presence in this world outside of these walls. But presence, by its very nature, requires unhurried, undistracted people. And so if we are going to succeed in our vision, and I very much hope we will, then we are all individually and corporately going to have to make some changes. And it begins by getting mad. Mad at those things that exist in our world and our lives that make it difficult to see Jesus and to see who we are in him 
and to follow him and cultivate a sense of his presence in our lives. He's told you what you are. You're a victor. He has told you about himself. He's faithful to you. He will never leave you or forget you. And he's told you what he has done for you. He's delivered you from the power of sin and death. He's cut their cords simply because he loves you, because he's promised to do it. And if anything or anyone is worthy of our time, it is him. So let us fight to live in his presence together. And as we did with Psalm 124, I want us to read this psalm together as the saints would have done as they traveled to Jerusalem. So if you would, as you are able, stand up wherever you are and I'll begin with the first verse and get us going. And I'll ask you to join me and please join me. Often they have attacked me from my youth. Let Israel now say, often they have attacked me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops that withers before it grows up, with which reapers do not fill their hands or binders of sheaves their arms, while those who pass by do not say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 